Hi, welcome to Light the Camera Author. I'm Jim Juno, and I have with me today a very special guest. She is the host of The Readout on MSNBC every weeknight at 7 p.m. Her name is Joy Reed, and she has a new book out. Uh, it's under your name of Joy Ann Reed. It is entitled Medgar and Murley, Medgar Evers, and the Love Story that Awakened America. Welcome to Light the Camera Author, Joy Reed. Thank you, Jim. Great to be here. I tell you what, I was reading parts of this book and I was learning things about Medgar Evers, which I did not know. And I and I thought I was a pretty good researcher, but you've really you've really done a deep dive into both their lives, haven't you? Uh, yeah, two years of research um, with a couple of really great research assistants from Howard University um, and a bunch of interviews, including half a dozen with Miss Murley herself and uh, her friends and neighbors on her block and people who knew her and a new Medgar uh, two years later. <laughs> and a lot of writing and a lot of time and effort, but yes. The amazing thing about Medgar Evers is that he he was a true American hero in every sense of the word, not just for his work in civil rights, but he was he was part of the Normandy landings uh, back in 1944. I didn't I did not realize that. Yeah, he landed um, at Normandy Beach with all of the other um, United States uh, members of the United States military. He was part of the Red Ball Express, um, which were primarily African-American soldiers who were part of the Transportation Corps. So what they did is they made sure that weapons and ammunition and all other supplies got to the front lines. And so that meant that they were going back and forth to the front line. So they were taking the same bullets, um, the same risks as all of the other white uh, American soldiers. They just didn't necessarily get the recognition. Exactly. And and for those of you out there who may be too young to remember Medgar Evers, uh, Medgar Evers, he was, as I said earlier, a hero in every sense of the word. He was a, he was a leader in the Jackson, Mississippi NAACP. He was also a very well-known civil rights activist. And and tragically, he was killed. He was murdered by white supremacists, I believe, on June 12, 1963. Did I get the date right, Joy? Yeah, just over midnight on June 12, 1963. Yep. In front of his house, as he got out of his car, in front of his family. And and really, it was a, um, I believe he was known as one of the big three in the civil rights movements, the uh, Medgar and Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King and um, Malcolm X, correct? Well, this is according to James Baldwin. Yeah, James Baldwin named Medgar, Malcolm and Martin as the three greats, uh, the three great luminaries of the civil rights movement. He knew all three men um, and he actually spent time with Medgar driving into the Delta with him. So he actually saw his work in action and saw how dangerous it was. And, you know, what, what I like to say is that Medgar did the work that Martin did, um, you know, in places like Birmingham uh, and, um, and Montgomery, Alabama, but he did it in Mississippi, um, which was the most dangerous place to be black in America. I was going to say that is, that is the worst, that was the worst state for civil rights. Yeah. I, I think, I think even to this day, I don't know. I, I just don't know how much has changed. Um, I work at an HBCU. This is, quote, my real job, unquote, uh, Virginia Union University in Richmond, Virginia. And I believe it was just last year that they took down 
the uh, the Confederate monuments. So, in your opinion, I mean, I know I know people will say a lot has changed, but has it really? Well, a lot has changed in Mississippi, for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. if you land at the airport now in Jackson, it's called Medgar Evers International Airport. Um, there's a lot that's changed there. Jackson, Mississippi, at the time uh, when this book is set in the 1960s, was run by a perennially and in incredibly racist white mayor. It's now run by a black mayor, um, uh, Mayor Lumumba. Um, the, the, the things that have not changed um, are the levels of poverty in Mississippi. Mississippi went from being the richest state in the union due to uh, Mississippi cotton, which was prized all over the world, to becoming the poorest state in the union after the end of enslavement. It went from having the most successful reconstruction because it actually had a black majority, 55% of the population was black. So this black and tan Republican coalition elected black people to statewide office. The postmaster general was black. The lieutenant governor was black. They sent black United States senators to Washington uh, to going to having the most violent and vicious um, retrograde retraction of reconstruction in their 1890 constitution that established things like the pig laws, five to 10 years in prison for stealing a pig, vagrancy laws, reckless eyeballing laws, just looking at a white person the wrong way could get you thrown in prison or lynched. You know, the, the backlash to reconstruction in Mississippi was more vicious than any other. Um, but yeah, a lot has changed. The things that haven't changed for black people is the uh, in the determination of white Mississippi's wealthy class to disenfranchise black people, that hasn't changed at all. Uh, Mississippi still has a 33% black population. It went down after the great migration dramatically, but with 33% of that population being black, the highest percentage in the country, they still only have one representative in Congress. Um, just one, Benny Thompson, who represents basically all of the black people. They drew a big line around them and gerrymandered them all into one district. Um, Jackson, Mississippi, with a black mayor, they don't control their own water and they have a Flint, Michigan style water contamination problem. Um, the wealthy white class in Jackson, in its which is the capital, have tried to take away their control over their own police. Um, some of the most violent policing in America takes place in Jackson, Mississippi, which is an 80% black city. I could go on and on. The one thing that hasn't changed about Mississippi is the determination of the white wealthy class in that state to give the black people in that state almost no rights, no voting rights, no personal freedoms, as few as they can. And the last thing I'll say is that Mississippi is the state that stole the um, the autonomy over our, over our bodies of women all over this country. It was the uh, the last abortion clinic in Jackson, Mississippi, that was the litigant in the Dobbs case. And Dobbs is the case in which Samuel Alito ended women's rights to our own bodies in this country by overturning Roe v. Wade. See, and, and now, now, like you said, Edgar Mevers uh, is an international airport in yeah. Jackson. Um, sorry, I'm not familiar with Jackson, Mississippi too much, but I do know of Alcorn State University, and this is where Medgar and Merle Beasley, which is was her maiden name, that's where they met, wasn't it? it? It is, and they are both Mississippi natives that go all the way back to the time of enslavement, and we did a lot of work to try to locate their enslaved ancestors. They both go all the way back um, in Mississippi, and in fact, Merle knew her enslaved grandmother, her formerly enslaved grandmother, until she was five years old. This woman was very much alive. So, um, you know, both of them had these roots in 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 the vicious uh, enslavement system in the state of Mississippi. 
Um, they both get to Alcorn, uh, what was Alcorn College. It's now Alcorn State University. Um, Murley was a 17-year-old from Vicksburg, a rural segregated town in Mississippi. And Medgar was from Decatur, Mississippi, also a very rural part of Mississippi. But he um, was a World War II veteran by that time, seven, seven years older than she was. And she was a 17-year-old naive young lady um, who had been told that she was to stay away from upperclassmen, football players, and veterans, and he was all three. <laughs> but she, she eventually came around to uh, to like him, didn't she? Uh, obviously, well, she, liked him. she liked him from the very beginning. It was her grandmother and her aunt that had to come around. They had to be convinced <laughs> that this man uh, was somebody that was right for their baby because they were at first they were a hard no <laughs> on this grown man marrying their daughter. <laughs> how did he? How did he bring them around? Uh, he charmed them. I mean, one of one of the things that really comes through in this book is that Medgar Evers was a very charming man uh, and he lobbied them. He would travel up to Vicksburg to visit uh, Grandma and Auntie Murley, uh, Grandma that, who, who was uh, Mary Mc Annie McCain Beasley, who Murley called Mama, and her aunt, whose name was also Murley. And he would visit them and hang out with them and talk to them and charm them. And he basically was his own lobbyist. And eventually he convinced them to allow um, the two of them to actually spend a summer together in Chicago in different houses. They couldn't sleep in the same house. Um, <laughs> And also uh, to 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 ultimately to get married, and Annie McCain Beasley did walk Miss Murley down the aisle. That's great. That's fantastic. And and then eventually Medgar becomes the field secretary. Is that the correct term yeah. for the Jackson? No, not for the Jackson and yeah. for the whole end of whole NAACP. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. And um, and he had some. He had some. I want to say a crisis of confidence, didn't he? when it first began. Well, he, he had a, a crisis of confidence, really, because um, his bosses in New York really did not like uh, his style of activism, even though they hired him because of it. Um, when he first uh, joined the NAACP as a college student, it was because he believed in activism on in the streets. He believed in uh, forcing the right to vote for Black people. He and his brother had actually shown up to register to vote in 1946 and uh, were chased away by 200 armed white men that they were incredibly brave at, you know, on the ground activism. But when he became the field secretary for the NAACP, what they wanted him to do was sign up people for NAACP memberships and register people to vote. But what he understood is that people were too afraid to register to vote. You could be lynched for registering to vote. You could have your mortgage pulled by the White Citizens Council members who own the banks. Um, you could be fired from your job for joining the NAACP or registering to vote. And there was a statewide spying agency that would watch who was going into NAACP meetings. And if that got back to your bosses, you could show up to work the next day to be told that you were getting a pink slip because joining the NAACP was considered making you an enemy of the state of Mississippi. So he wanted to cultivate the activism, not of these terrified adults, but of their kids who were very brave and wanted to march and sit in and desegregate libraries and schools and the zoo. They wanted to do it and he wanted to work with them. But his bosses said, absolutely not. That's not what we want you doing. And we don't like spending the money to bail those kids out of jail. So he was at odds with his own bosses about the way that he was trying to liberate Mississippi. How did it was his charm is what brought them around also? 
It never did. He, he, oh. he never did bring them around. And toward the end of his life, he was very convinced that he was going to be fired uh, and told his closest aide, a white activist, a white religious man named uh, Reverend Ed King. Um, he told him that I do believe I'm going to be fired tomorrow. Um, the, this is on the night that he died. He was confident that his bosses were going to cashier him because he would not stop um, the sit-ins and boycotts in downtown Jackson. And he gave a speech a little bit earlier, I think it was a few days earlier, that was carried on national TV, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, Meg Rivers was the first black man to deliver a televised address. So he, it was the first time that white Mississippians had seen a black man on television. Um, obviously, there were no black newscasters. There were no black folks. You know, even sports was segregated. So they would, you know, and they would segregate it. I mean, Mississippi is a state that wouldn't show Sesame Street on TV because the Muppets were integrated. They were different colors and they refused and they were black. <laughs> on the show. I mean, Mississippi for a long time on their public television wouldn't even show that. Wow. So seeing Medgar Evers um, appear on television in 1963, um, this is before Sesame Street existed, by the way. So, um, <laughs> but um, I think six, um, Sesame Street started in 1968 or 69. But anyway, at that time, um, they had never seen a black person on television. So he wins a court case, a landmark court case that goes all the way up to federal district court over whether or not he could get, get equal time with the mayor of Jackson, the racist mayor of Jackson, who had given a speech televised saying black people loved segregation and that black Mississippians were happy. And he wanted to refute that and went to court and won. And he was able to give this landmark TV address in which he used a lot of the language that John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, mm -hmm. would later use in his television address on June 11, which was hours before the Klan, a Klan member uh, assassinated Medgar. And that, like I said, like you said, that June 12, 1963 was the assassination. And Murley, Murley Evers, the wife, his wife, she became, I guess you would call it the prototype for the wife of the black, of the, of the wife, I don't want to say wife of the black martyr, uh, but wife of the civil rights martyr. Absolutely. I mean, she wrote the template that later Betty, Dr. Betty Shabazz and um, later Coretta Scott King um, could use because before her, there really were no nationally known civil rights widows. There were plenty of civil rights widows. I mean, the Klan was killing black men um, throughout Mississippi and throughout the American South with just abandoned because they knew there were no legal consequences to killing black people at that time in America. But most of them were known locally. They were known in their communities or they might even be known statewide, but they weren't known on a national level. Medgar was somebody who was telegramming the president of the United States. He was somebody who was in conversation with Dr. King. He was somebody who had been an officer in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference before his bosses at the uh, NAACP forced him to resign. So he was somebody who was known by other national leaders. He'd been to the White House in the room with Kennedy as Kennedy finally took a meeting with black leaders to tell him what was his plan for civil rights. So when he died, Dan Rather was outside of the door, uh, outside of the house when Merle Evers walked out of her home after her husband was dead, was pronounced dead. She walks out and there's Dan Rather and the CBS news crew and other national news crews waiting for her. And she had to figure out what to do in that moment and how to react to it, how to react in a way that wouldn't seem so angry that she would be dismissed as an angry black woman, how to react in a way that would allow the world to understand what her husband had done, what he had sacrificed, and to make his legacy lasting and make his legacy legitimate. And she figured that out on her own with no one to teach her. And I, I did see an interview with her uh, done 
uh, done recent, I don't know how recently, but, but in modern day. And she admitted that at that time, she had hate in her heart. And um, understandably so. She just saw her husband and the father of the children killed right before their eyes. And it took a while to get over it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what people dismiss, I think, when they look at these civil rights leaders and their their families, you know, they're living in a world of absolute hate. You know, she's living in a state that hated black people, um, even though they loved their labor, especially their free labor when they were enslaved and that refused to see black people as human or as equal in any way. And that was the status of blacks in 1963. So when she walks out, she sees a bunch of white policemen who had been following her husband around, but somehow were absent at the time when they needed when he needed a police officer most. She sees media people um, knowing that she sees media people knowing that oftentimes the, the, the media in Mississippi would slam her husband, try to embarrass him, try to find negative things to say about him uh, and were never supportive of the work that he was doing. And all she felt in that moment was rage and hate. And she talks about wanting to go back inside and get one of Medgar's guns because he had a lot of them in the house and just shoot down everybody that she saw outside. And, you know, this was something that he talked about back um, in an interview he did with Ebony magazine in the 1950s, that working through your hatred of people who hate you is part of your growth as a civil rights leader. It's part of your growth as a human being. And I think it's instructive, you know, for white America to understand that black people understand this country has never loved us. This country has done nothing but hate us from the time that black people were brought here in chains. And it is this dichotomy of needing black people because black people lend labor to the country that builds the country, loving black culture and wanting to use black culture. We see what's happening with Beyonce now. They're trying to take her out of country music. Black people invented country music, but then were exiled from it and told you can't be in here anymore. We've got white flight now. We moved into the neighborhood and you need to go. Um, and so this is the way the country has operated for black people forever. Um, and as James Baldwin said, to be a black person of reasonable consciousness in America is to be in a rage most of the time. Mm -hmm. And yet the way that black people have to present themselves in order to be acceptable in America, in order to have our voices heard, is that you have to present with grace. And so this is something that Merle had to work through, but eventually she found that there were white people who were willing to be on her side, who were willing to work with her including a reporter from the Clarion Ledger, the notoriously racist paper that had changed under the under the hand and stewardship of one of its original founding members, uh, nephews, who decided to change the paper from a racist paper to an actual journalistic enterprise. Uh, and this um, journalist reached out to Murley with a solution to her biggest problem, which is how to get justice for her late husband. And he had the answer and she had the transcripts from the original trial and they came together, Mr. Mitchell, and they helped to solve um, this, 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 this challenge in the state of Mississippi of getting justice. And so she eventually did learn to get past hate and to get to a place of acceptance uh, of the role that she and her family had played in trying to liberate Mississippi. How long, how long have you wanted to do this book? Uh, I, I wanted to do it. I really, and it's funny when I first uh, got a chance to interview Murley and Miss Murley uh, Evers Williams in person in 2018, I wanted her to do it. Uh, I said to her when she described to me how much she loves, and I mean that in the present tense, Medgar Evers and how in love with him she remained even at that time. And I'm meeting her and I said to her, Miss Murley, it's been 60 years. This man has been dead for, you know, decades and you still sound like a giggly schoolgirl. <laughs> 
And she said, this man was the love of my life. And I said to her, Miss Murley, you should write about that. You know, you've written two amazing books, which I read and they're wonderful, but you should just write about the love story. And she said, no, darling, I've written so much. I'm not, I'm not going to write a book at 90, at almost 90. I mean, that she wasn't even <laughs> close to She was in her eighties at the time. Um, and then when a couple of years later, um, I was having lunch with my, uh, my book agent, Suzanne and Peter, my publisher from Mariner Books. And they said, well, what do you want to write about next? And I just kept coming back to Miss Murley and that love story and thinking it would be it would be great for at for once um, for Americans to read about a civil rights story and read about the people as humans uh, who fall in love and have kids and have arguments and have fights and have, you know, road trips and and normal people things in addition to being heroes. You know, it, it also seems to me that that she has done an excellent job of not just preserving his legacy, but also promoting his legacy. And it looks like you know, like every you can draw a line, straight line from Medgar Evers to Martin Luther King, to well, to, or to Malcolm X, to Martin Luther King, all the way up to Barack Obama. Yes, you absolutely. Know. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's creating, and you know, what Medgar Evers always would say is in addition to, I've got my saying here, freedom uh, has never been free. Um, he also really truly believed that in order to create liberation, you have to, you have to develop in people uh, a freedom from fear. And that's actually one of the chapters of my book is that, you know, that fear is like a shackle that remains on you and doesn't allow you to act even in your own interest. And so what Medgar was really trying to do was to create in people a sense of dignity. And that once they developed a sense of dignity, that was the first small step in freeing themselves from fear. And I think that for Black America, it's been creating that sense of dignity and pride in us. You know, when Barack Obama first started running, Senator Obama, I remember friends of mine in Florida saying they would not vote for him because of a fear that he would be assassinated and that they would prefer to see Hillary Clinton win because they thought that she as a white person could survive being president and that Barack Obama would be murdered. It was the fear that made Alma Powell talk Colin Powell, General Powell out of running. This fear that black people have had because we live in a country that has done little more than lynch us um, for most of our time here. But getting past that freedom and embracing the idea that someone named Barack Hussein Obama could be president, that is freedom from fear. Um, for Medgar, he wanted to name his firstborn son Kenyatta after Jomo Kenyatta, the revolutionary Mau Mau leader in Kenya. And Merle Evers was terrified of that. She said, absolutely not. A, a, a little black boy named Kenyatta will never make it past 10 years old in Mississippi. He'll be killed. But he managed to convince her to at least put Kenyatta in the name. So their firstborn son, uh, his middle name was Kenyatta. His first name was Daryl. Um, but, you know, even naming your child Daryl Kenyatta uh, in 19, he was born in 1954. That's actually pretty brave or 52. It is. Yeah, it that, is. Yes. That's actually pretty brave. So, you know, this slow march in freedom from fear is what takes us from a time when a black man couldn't live to be 40 in in Mississippi just because he opened his mouth and said black people should have rights to a black man becoming president whose name is Barack Hussein Obama. <laughs> That's a pretty good character arc for America. And I think it's instructive on what we can do when we're not afraid. And also, I guess you can draw the line all the way to Kamala Harris. 
Absolutely. Yes. And exactly. This is the daughter of a Jamaican um, immigrant and an Indian uh, immigrant who is the most powerful woman in the history of the United States. And that's saying a lot because we had Nancy Pelosi, you know, who is also <laughs> the most powerful woman, uh, Italian-American woman, family of immigrants from Baltimore, from Bmore. So it's like we think about the strides that women have made, that African-Americans have made, um, that, we, that we, we can do a lot in this country when we cast off um, the these divisions and fears and work uh, toward a more perfect union, toward something better. And that's all that Megger was doing. You know, I, I, one of the other love stories is his love of Mississippi. And people wonder, well, how could somebody possibly love a place like Mississippi? But he did. He didn't want to leave. He said the racists should leave if they don't like it. He wants to stay and he wanted to make Mississippi as great as it could possibly be for his family and to make it good enough for his wife and children. And that's not hating Mississippi. That is loving Mississippi. I didn't realize he was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Yes, yes. And that's because he shared with President Kennedy the status of being World War II veteran. You know, you have to remember, Kennedy was a transitional figure in America. He was a baby boomer, but he was a just at the end of the baby boom era, just like Barack Obama is just at the beginning of the Gen X generation. And he's the hinge between the boomers and us. Um, he was this young president who respected a fellow veteran and used some of his language in his landmark speech on June 11 to say first class citizenship is something Black people deserve. And by taking that step, he put his own life at risk and lost his life at the end of 1963. Well, the book is Medgar and Murley, Medgar Evers, and the love story that awakened America. Joy Ann Reed, or maybe better known as Joy Reed on <laughs> MSNBC, I want to thank you again for being on Lights, Camera, Author today. Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure.